You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to Toronto Centre's webinar on cyber risk. Virtually everybody is exposed to cyber risk in some form. In recent years, financial institutions have experienced many cyber attacks. Recognizing a threat from cyber risks and the critical need to enhance financial institutions' resilience to those risks, authorities across the globe have taken regulatory and supervisory measures designed to mitigate and manage cyber risk. International coordination will play a key role due to contagious nature of cyber attacks. Cyber attacks and cyber risk are of critical concern to financial supervisory and regulatory agencies worldwide. The changing nature of cyber risk is driven by evolving technology which can lead to new or increased vulnerabilities for financial institutions and their clients. Standard setters like the Basel Committee and also G7 G20 and the IMF have been addressing this issue. Our speaker today will be speaking about cyber threats to the financial market infrastructures from the authorities' perspective, as well as what needs to be done to create cyber-resilient financial systems globally. Massimo also developed our brand new two payment systems programs, which will be held in Pretoria, South Africa and Istanbul, Turkey in October and December 2018 respectively. This discussion is important to Toronto Centre because it can advance our mission to promote change that will lead to sound, stable and inclusive financial systems. That in turn foster economic growth and poverty reduction. Thank you for joining us today. Hope you will find this webinar useful. Hello everyone, I'm Jerry Lewis and I'll be your host for today's session. Our session today will be approximately 40 minutes. At this time I'd like to invite our guest Massimo Saracino, former Global Lead for Payment and Markets Infrastructure in the Finance and Markets Global Practice at the World Bank. Welcome, Massimo. Thank you, Jared. So we are going to touch upon some of uh, the main concerns that the payment system community has uh, currently, uh, which is uh, namely cyber threats. But before we do that, we're going to talk briefly about what we mean by financial infrastructure, its importance and a little bit of uh, uh, a very brief historical uh, background of uh, what has concerned all of us for the last few years and why more recently we have come uh, to be very worried about uh, cyber resilience and threats. So um, let me start by uh, saying that uh, uh, we uh, have accumulated a lot of experience globally on this front and uh, um, I have uh, had the pleasure to serve uh, at the World Bank for 20 years and uh, to be uh, exposed to several um, discussions and groups uh, around the world over all these years, so more than 100 countries. So what I'm going to present to you today is not necessarily only 
you know, my own uh, views, but also uh, a collective uh, set of views by all uh, uh, of us. And in fact, I've always talked about the global payment system community as the repository of knowledge in this field. So I'm just representing a broader set of individuals that have studied this topic for a long time now. Um, in terms of definitions, uh, one definition that has become very popular uh, in the last few years is that of uh, financial market infrastructure, which is defined uh, by the comedian payments and uh, market infrastructures and the International Organization of Securities Commissions, IOSCO, as a multilateral system among participating institutions, including the operator of the system, used for the purposes of clearing, settling, or recording payments, securities, derivatives, or, or other financial transactions. I want to stress the fact that uh, it is not just the operator of the system that makes the FMI, so the financial market infrastructure, but it's the collection of all these players. Uh, five types of FMIs have been uh, recognized, and uh, um, to those that are international standards that apply, as I will mention, uh, later on. They are payment systems, cent uh, central securities depositories, security settlement systems, central counterparties, and trade repositories. So they serve the market uh, in different ways. Um, but there is a broader concept of financial infrastructure, which uh, additionally uh, refers to other types of infrastructure, for example, training systems for uh, securities or shared uh, transaction systems for payments. Uh, and also um, in the retail payment space, we're all familiar with ATM, POS networks, and now more modern online payment and mobile uh, networks. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we have also come to define financial infrastructure as uh, uh, including also credit reporting systems, so like credit bureaus and public registers as well. And all of them form the backbone of the financial sector uh, to the point that, as we can see um, in a slide where we have defined the three main boxes, uh, the financial infrastructure is important because on one end, as in box one, it promotes economic development. For example, payment systems function as the infrastructure established to facilitate transfer of monetary value between parties. And they, by uh, you know, this role, uh, uh, determine the efficiency uh, with which transaction money is used in the economy. So if uh, uh, a payment system doesn't work well, it affects uh, development and trade. Uh, credit reporting, on the other end, they address a fundamental problem of credit markets, which is asymmetric information between borrowers and lenders. And in that way, they can uh, lower the cost of capital. If we move to box two, which is equally important, uh, we can focus on uh, uh, the role of financial infrastructure in supporting financial stability. On the payment system side, this is done through the reduction of systemic and settlement risks through, uh, for example, uh, uh, real-time gross settlement systems, uh, payment versus payment arrangements or delivery versus payment arrangements for securities, and also facilitating liquidity management. And then on the credit reporting side, uh, it is uh, the role of credit infrastructure uh, to help enhance financial supervision by providing tools to both uh, lenders and their supervisors. Um, more recently, um, a focus uh, uh, has been 
on uh, the role of financial infrastructure to foster financial inclusion as uh, in box uh, three of the slide, where, you know, in terms of payment services, clearly most individuals access the financial infrastructure, uh, the financial system at first by using payment services. And that means that they, they are an entry point uh, for a broader set of financial services. Uh, and so even those uh, individuals that are excluded from the formal uh, financial sector uh, because they don't have access to accounts, they still uh, use uh, some forms of payment services that can be leveraged to facilitate their inclusion. And uh, similarly, uh, to some uh, sophisticated uh, forms of uh, creating credit reports, like uh, credit scoring um, uh, for individuals that don't have a, a lot of history of credit, uh, this uh, can be used to facilitate access to credit for those individuals that, that uh, currently are excluded from that service. So just to say, uh, it is a fundamental piece, not only of the financial sector, but of the overall economy, and it serves uh, several purposes. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, we can uh, just uh, name a few sectors that are affected by um, uh, the financial infrastructure in a broad sense of the word. Uh, social protection, for example, through uh, the fact that uh, certain uh, social programs are delivered through uh, payment services. Uh, public sector reforms uh, always benefit from a modernization of the infrastructure. Uh, the private sector, as I mentioned, uh, is affected uh, in a great way by the availability of credit facilitated by credit infrastructures and by the efficiency of the payment system. Capital markets are found find in the um, financial infrastructure, uh, for example, uh, the well-needed uh, um, uh, portion of, of the chain, which is the clearing and settlement. Um, and uh, even agriculture and a, a broader a physical infrastructure, they can benefit greatly because, uh, of course, uh, they need uh, easy uh, and efficient and safe ways uh, of making payments. So this is just to say that if uh, there is a disruption in the financial infrastructure, it is not only central banks and other regulators and supervisors in the financial sector that are affected uh, or interested, but also the broader population. Now, um, over the years, um, the main concern of authorities in particular and uh, the standard setters in this field um, uh, has been uh, on uh, the issue of risk, risk management, but more from the point of view of financial risk. Um, so, uh, you know, at, at least uh, throughout the 90s uh, and, and the beginning of the 2000s, uh, really, um, the main uh, concern was how to reduce financial risk uh, in, in this infrastructure, both in terms of uh, liquidity risk uh, as well as uh, credit risk. And uh, there have been several ways to address this, as I will mention in a moment. And there were uh, some uh, standards that have been produced uh, to um, guide uh, action by the, the authorities and the private sector in this field. Uh, namely, uh, the core principles for systemic important payment systems were issued in 2001. Um, similar standards for security settlement systems were also issued around that time, and then followed by uh, recommendations for central counterparties. Um, and they have uh, served their purpose for several years, 
Uh, of course, I'm biased to speak because I've been sitting in all these uh, groups that produce these standards. But uh, um, clearly, after the global crisis in 2008, um, the community reflected on the need to have, uh, uh, let's say, a more consistent set of standards across the different types of FMIs. And this is what brought to the production of the so-called PFMIs, the Principles for Financial Market Infrastructures, that were issued by CPMI and IOSCO in 2012. And they have uh, uh, harmonized, as I mentioned, the existing set of standards, hopefully strengthening them uh, based on lessons from the crisis and uh, uh, different gaps that had been noticed in the application of standards. Uh, I should uh, uh, mention that uh, uh, the standards are not uh, prescriptive, uh, have never been, uh, neither the old ones nor the new ones, but uh, and so that brings to a certain, uh, let's say, freedom in the application of them, depending on the needs of the jurisdiction, but clearly um, there was the issue of consistency and also the issue of uh, application um, and commitment to apply, apply them. Uh, there was also an issue of harmonizing the assessment methodology. Uh, I have been uh, myself involved in several assessments uh, to uh, the financial sector assessment program of the World Bank and the IMF. And I know by experience how difficult it is uh, to use a method different methodologies to apply similar standards to different types of FMIs. So the attempt of uh, this new set of standards has been to really harmonize all this and commit the community uh, to uh, even more aggressively um, apply them. Um, I should mention that uh, uh, clearly the focus uh, um, had already shifted a bit from financial risk to other types of risk uh, that are also covered in the standards, for example, legal risk and also operational risk in particular after uh, September uh, um, of 2001, there was clearly um, a, a new focus on operational uh, reliability and business continuity. But uh, uh, clearly, uh, let's say the mindset has been, let's minimize uh, risks and make sure that uh, uh, financial market infrastructures are as safe uh, and efficient as possible. And uh, just to be on, uh, before we talk about uh, the, uh, let's say, the, the the, the, the new concerns, so to speak. Let's talk a bit about uh, some of the achievements of these efforts. Uh, clearly, um, there are certain infrastructures, in particular, large value uh, payments and uh, central counterparties for which uh, uh, failure is not an option. So if we look uh, uh, at the top of, uh, of slide nine, uh, you know, we have seen in even more recent years a number of uh, efforts to make sure that, uh, for example, central counterparties be as safe as possible. And uh, even if we look at some of um, the, uh, uh, the key uh, risk control measures uh, and uh, compare across a couple of years as uh, measured by the World Bank Global Payment System Survey, we can see improvements of a certain uh, uh, key uh, features. I will not go through uh, the details, but uh, in some cases improvement, improvements have been important, although um, it is uh, interesting that, uh, for example, uh, in 2012, uh, out of the 68 central counterparties that were surveyed, 
uh, only let's say uh, three quarters uh, were conducting regular stress tests, which uh, seems uh, like a counterintuitive for an institution like a central counterpart. So, you know, although there was progress uh, at the time of a publication of the standards, uh, still uh, there was some uh, room for improvement. In terms of the large value um, payment systems, uh, first of all, uh, I have to say that uh, um, the 2008 financial crisis showed that without uh, uh, having a, a sound infrastructure in place, uh, I think we will be talking about a different story now. Uh, I had, uh, let's say, the, the privilege, although it, it, they were scary days, of being uh, you know, very close to the debate uh, and also to the action. And I can tell you, for example, that without uh, having a CLS bank in place, which is, uh, as you might know, uh, the infrastructure uh, that settles the most uh, important uh, uh, currencies uh, uh, across the world at the, uh, based on a, a safe mechanism of payment versus payment, so basically the two legs of the uh, currency transaction uh, are um, handled safely simultaneously uh, and it is by far the most important payment system in the world without having that uh, available or a number of uh, sound real-time settlement systems at the domestic level I think we will be talking about uh, a different financial sector now uh, so clearly there was some satisfaction that uh, uh, let's say in uh, 15 years the number of uh, RTGS systems had uh, grown from, uh, let's say, around 10 to maybe over 120. And, and so uh, clearly uh, central banks and uh, uh, banks uh, have to be uh, praised for a big achievement. So in that context, uh, a big uh, portion, let's say, of, of, of the infrastructure not only uh, was uh, very well established, but also was able to uh, withstand uh, uh, the crisis well. In terms of uh, security settlement systems, um, similarly, uh, there were a number of uh, uh, systems, uh, um, you know, that even around the crisis and of course uh, uh, over the, the following years, have uh, been able to uh, settle properly uh, based on the uh, existing and the new standards, uh, typically based uh, on uh, delivery versus payment arrangements, uh, which means that uh, securities are only transferred when uh, uh, the, um, the, the payment portion of the transaction is uh, uh, simul simultaneously uh, settled. Uh, eliminating the credit risk associated with with that. So in uh, most systems, in particular most uh, uh, systems of systemic importance, uh, this DVP arrangement is now a fact and has been a fact for a number of years. Uh, and so only at the margin there are systems that don't use this particular um, way of uh, settling transactions. So this is another good news, so to speak, which is not uh, like uh, uh, recent news, but uh, it, has, uh, it is actually uh, the reason why uh, we were able to then move, in a sense, to a new set of, uh, of recommendations. But then, um, if we look at, uh, even at 2015, 
let's say, when uh, we felt uh, a little bit uh, reassured that things were on the right track based on what I have just mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I took uh, a look back. So I, I was just looking at uh, what the DTCC systemic risk barometer would be saying to us. And uh, in, uh, in 2015, when not many incidents uh, had, uh, occurred at the level of the infrastructure, uh, we could see that uh, um, almost half of the respondents to that survey um, cited cybersecurity as their top concern. And 80% of, the, of them rated it as a top five risk overall. Needless to say, I don't even need to uh, present the new numbers. So these numbers are now you know, very close to like everybody's is, uh, concern. Um, and so uh, I think this has been a shift in the, uh, in, in the attention, uh, not only by regulators, but also by the private sector, and we will talk a little bit about that. Um, and so um, people have started talking about cybersecurity, and uh, uh, to the point that, uh, um, you know, we're still uh, actually probably uh, fighting to find the right definition, but I think we all understand what we mean by that. Um, let's just uh, read a couple of these definitions that I, I put on the slide. Uh, for example, by the um, ITU, the collection of tools, policies, securities, uh, security concepts, security safeguards, guidelines, risk management approaches, actions, training, best practices, assurance, and technologies that can be used to protect the cyber environment and organization and users' assets. This seems a very comprehensive definition, but I think it's also a scary one because it tells us how many things we need to look at when trying to have a, a safe environment from a, a cyber perspective. Um, I think uh, probably I like uh, much more than one from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the process of protecting information by preventing, detecting and responding to attacks. But in any case, no matter what definition we use, I think uh, we are very um, much aware by now that uh, cyber risk is uh, <laughs> well different from the traditional operational risk we had, uh, we had uh, dealt with in the past. Uh, in that uh, the operational risk was looking at scenario-based uh, uh, situations, uh, much less complex identification. Uh, it could be handled with uh, uh, relatively effective uh, business continuity protocols and in fact there are several recommendations that have evolved over the years that have uh, talked about uh, uh, you know, how to deploy different teams uh, in situations of stress, what types of uh, uh, protocols they have to uh, follow, uh, and so on, the, the distance between contingency sites, uh, things of that kind. Uh, and uh, it was somehow, it is somehow easier to come with an estimate of the cost of, of uh, these actions to protect the systems. And so uh, this can be more easily planned in, in a world of uh, just uh, traditional operational risk. When we talk about the cyber risk, clearly it is constantly evolving. It has a pervasive scope. It is not clear uh, how one can look at the recovery path depending on the, on the attack. Uh, of course, there are multiple entry points 
into the system that can uh, bring new risks and potentially there is no limit to what to the damage that a cyber attack can do so clearly we have all come to identify this as a, a big thing in that uh, there are at least uh, um, six uh, 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 consequences of these uh, threats. First uh, uh, is the direct financial loss, the monetary loss to cyber crimes. This is not a new, a new, um, uh, a new risk because uh, in particular in the retail payment system, I think operators are familiar with frauds and uh, they had to cope with that, which would bring uh, uh, clearly a, a financial loss to the entities affected. But in addition to that, uh, and also, of course, uh, when we talk about large value systems, we're talking about you know, bigger numbers. But in addition to the financial loss, I think in some cases even uh, more, uh, more important is the indirect financial loss, uh, the cost of uh, remediation, uh, the loss uh, to the shrinkage of market shares, uh, the reputational damage, um, which uh, is not only, of course, for private sector entities, but also and importantly for authorities. Uh, um, and also, of course, uh, the uh, potential of a client data loss. Uh, the fact that uh, the, the service can be unavailable for a long time. Uh, clearly the fact that, uh, you know, through these uh, uh, attacks, uh, um, money laundering uh, and terrorism financing can take place, which brings a lot of legal risks, uh, among others. And then uh, clearly uh, the fraud uh, that is associated with that. So. Um, we could uh, spell all these risks in, into many more categories, but I think it is uh, sufficient uh, to understand why this is uh, attracting a lot of attention. And if we look at the threats, and I will not go through a lot of details uh, in looking at this slide, which to me uh, is, well, um, uh, is well clear, but there are several um, you know, potential uh, adversaries and, and enemies, so to speak, uh, that go from the top, from uh, states or uh, uh, even uh, big companies uh, that uh, might uh, enter into this kind of uh, activity for uh, competitive reasons, for example. Uh, of course, the organized crime, activist groups, and then there are a number of others, including opportunists that might have a very low cap capability, but uh, might stress the defenses that the institutions are putting in place. And so when there is a major attack, probably these defenses are already exhausted, so to speak, by these other attacks. So um, there are a number of principles of uh, cybersecurity strategies that are emerging. As I mentioned, I'm not necessarily an expert of this thing, so I prefer to have just a quick look at them just for us to prepare for the response that uh, the payment system community is providing. Clearly, uh, cybersecurity is not a problem that can just be fixed, but rather something that uh, will continue to exist uh, in a dynamic way. And it's not just the responsibility uh, of the chief uh, information security officer, but has to become uh, an enterprise-wide matter. Uh, should not be based solely on the adherence to standards and compliance, but uh, 
uh, one uh, should also look on, on how uh, to protect the critical information uh, and the assets involved. Uh, and cannot be just technology driven, but uh, it, it needs to involve a change in the behavior um, and in the corporate culture as well as in the authorities' response. Um, typically, um, along these lines, there are a few questions that are asked in preparing a, a cybersecurity strategy. First and foremost, what are the critical information assets that uh, one should protect? And then what are the threats that uh, are faced? Uh, then what is the current position, posture, the capability uh, of the institution? What are the, the visions and goals of the institution for cybersecurity? What are the objectives and what is the implementation? Because it's very important and all these strategies are not left on paper, but are implemented and of course adapted uh, constantly. Uh, so if this is uh, the problem, uh, let's see how in the community, in particular standard setters and authorities, have uh, come to respond to that. Um, and I will focus uh, in this presentation, as I mentioned, mainly on financial market infrastructures uh, uh, and uh, uh, world sale payments. But uh, there are responses also in other parts of the financial infrastructure, as I defined at the beginning. Let me just uh, quote uh, the uh, efforts of the International Committee uh, on Credit Reporting. That is a World Bank Group-led uh, committee. That is the standard setter in credit reporting that I had the honor to, to chair for nine years since its inception. And I know as a fact uh, that uh, uh, the, the ICCR, as it is called, uh, is focusing a lot of efforts on uh, providing guidance on that. But let's focus on the actions of uh, uh, the uh, CPMI and IOSCO. Um, uh, there was a, uh, a guidance on cyber resilience for financial market infrastructure that was pro uh, produced by CPMI and IOSCO and as uh, the chair of the CPMI in this case, uh, uh, Benoit Couré mentioned uh, that would be or was a, a landmark report uh, for the financial industry. And in fact, what uh, it did uh, is uh, trying to instill international consistency in the industry's ongoing efforts to enhance uh, its cyber resilience, including the ability of financial market infrastructures to preempt cyber attacks, respond rapidly and effectively to them, and achieve a faster and safer target recovery objective, uh, objectives if the attacks succeed. Uh, the cyber guidance uh, also provides authorities with a set of internationally agreed guidelines to support consistency in this field. Uh, so this is uh, organized uh, around uh, five uh, main uh, risk management categories and uh, three overarching co components. Uh, just uh, let's uh, just uh, go through them quickly uh, and you will find the usual suspects there for risk management categories, governance, identification, protection, detention, and response and recovery. And the overarching components are testing, situational awareness, and learning and evolving. Uh, now, it is very important to stress that in order to achieve resilience objectives, investments across those guidance categories can be mutually reinforcing and should be considered jointly. So I guess this has to be seen 
just uh, as a, a, a distinction for presentation purposes, but clearly all these elements have to be uh, you know, addressed together. I think what is uh, most important about this report uh, is that uh, um, it, it was a, a recognition that uh, in addition to the PFMIs, which are, as we'll, we'll see in, the, in a moment, continue to be the framework, that, uh, you know, yes, cyber security is a big issue. And uh, coming from the main standard setters in this field, uh, the CPMI and IOSCO, this was an important message. So I see a lot of uh, value, let's say, in the political message in addition to, of course, the technical guidance that is uh, inside these reports. Um, clearly, uh, cyber risks in FMIs are different in a sense that uh, one could not think of competing over those uh, topics across FMIs, because all FMIs are, or many FMIs are somehow interconnected. And so thinking of being happy because uh, another FMI is affected by a, a, an incident of cyber attack, I think uh, is a nonsense. So I think everybody understands that uh, one cannot be cyber resilient alone. Uh, and then the other message uh, is, uh, as I mentioned, that uh, many of these elements had already been identified in the principles for financial market infrastructures, in particular in five principles, uh, principle two on governance, principle two on framework for comprehensive risk management, principle eight on seven finality, principle 17 on operational risk, and principle 20 on FMI links. So uh, this guidance is just uh, an elaboration um, of uh, the framework that is already the um, uh, that was already identifying these elements and it continues to be uh, our you know guiding light so to speak in this field. Now the CPMI in this case alone um, uh, also uh, set up uh, um, a, let's say a task force to look into security of all sale payments that involve banks, financial market infrastructure, and other financial institutions. This is uh, also due to the multiplication of episodes of attacks um, to um, the main infrastructure, including uh, at central banks around the world. Uh, so th this was not a theoretical uh, consideration. It was uh, coming out of a very a concrete uh, um, threat that was uh, evolving and uh, that led this task force uh, to develop a strategy which the CPMI published for public consultation in September uh, 2017 uh, and then of course uh, it is now um, let's say finalized based on the comments received. Uh, and this strategy's primary aim is to encourage and help the focus of the, the industry efforts to reduce the risk of wholesale payments fraud. And of course, in doing so, support financial stability. And more importantly, to that end, each CPMI central bank and the CPMI as a whole, uh, they are all committed to acting as catalysts for effective and coherent operationalization of the strategy within and across jurisdictions and systems. Uh, and then we'll also monitor progress throughout 2018 and 2019 to determine the need for further action. Uh, I've been around the CPSS, that is the predecessor of the CPMI, uh, Committee on Payment and Settlement Systems, as only changed the name, mm -hmm. but uh, not the content of its uh, work. 
since the beginning uh, in 1990. And uh, it is very rare to see such a, a strong message uh, with dates by the CPMI that is a very prudent uh, committee that uh, tends not to commit on specific dates and, uh, and actions. Uh, also being a, a consensus exercise, a consensus committee of different uh, central banks around the world tends to be very diplomatic. So I just want to alert those that are not familiar with the CPMI politics that I think these are very strong messages from the CPMI uh, on action that is being taken. Uh, so in May 2018, uh, a new report was published that is uh, named Reducing the Risk of Wholesale Payments Fraud Related to Endpoint Security which uh, seems uh, a little bit vague, but uh, it, uh, in, it, in its title includes all the key elements, as we will probably see. Uh, it first discusses the wholesale payment ecosystem and endpoints. Endpoints is probably a strange uh, a word, but uh, it basically talks about any interaction with the system. So every time a transaction hits the system or an, an interaction uh, among participants takes place, this is an endpoint. Uh, and the risk uh, then uh, associated with the fraud that could uh, emerge in this uh, wholesale payments. And it stresses the need for holistic and co approach and coordination. Uh, it uh, then presents uh, seven elements, which I will cover in a moment, and then discusses the plans we have already uh, briefly uh, referred to. Um, with due recognition of the need for flexibility to reflect the uniqueness of each system, but then also uh, with a clear and strong uh, commitment to act. Uh, the seven areas uh, for the operationalization of the strategy uh, are on one end identifying and understanding the range of risks, then establishing the requirements that each of these endpoints has to, uh, to, to meet, uh, then promote uh, uh, proactively the adherence to these requirements provide and use information and tools to improve prevention and detection. And then probably the most important, in my opinion, which is respond in a timely way to potential fraud, because uh, it could happen, it will happen. So, you know, the response has to be immediate. And plans to uh, activate these responses uh, have to be clear and tested. And then uh, uh, support ongoing education, awareness, and information sharing is really important. And through that, learn, evolve, and coordinate. Oh, clearly, this uh, framework has to be adapted to the evolving uh, needs and trends. So coincidentally, although there is a long list of uh, cases that one could cite, but uh, uh, unfortunately, um, one of the leading uh, uh, central uh, banks in this field uh, reported that uh, uh, recently there was uh, an attack. Um, and uh, it's the Central Bank of Mexico that has been really leading some of these international debates and, and, and leading by example. So it is uh, really a, a, a bank, a central bank and the banking sector as a well whole that, that have invested a lot in this. So it is a little bit scary to see that uh, in Mexico, according to the central bank, uh, there were uh, attacks, let's say, to a uh, few banks that materialize in the RTGS, which in my opinion, I want to say continues to be one of the most efficient uh, RTGS systems in the world. So it is uh, really uh, scary that uh, this has happened, although it just reinforced the need to act 
uh, along the lines that we have seen. And we are uh, very, uh, I think we should be very thankful that, uh, you know, th th our leaders in this field have already identified a path uh, to, to, to act upon. So just to conclude, um, uh, some of uh, the key actions to enhance cybersecurity that we have discussed and that the reports highlight, um, clearly cybersecurity risk is a business issue. Um, one should adopt a stand-based risk assessment methodology and manage the entire risk life cycle. Risk, uh, uh, cybersecurity risk is everyone's responsibility. One should ensure uh, controls over people, processes, and technology. Uh, make initial and sustainable investments. Uh, again, uh, risk-based investments, uh, because uh, uh, you know the, the, the threats are really all over the place. We cannot uh, afford not to prioritize our actions. And don't overlook doing the basics. Uh, I cannot enter into any specific uh, detail of uh, my own experience uh, uh, with some of uh, these uh, situations, but uh, I can tell you that even in a very well-known uh, incidents of cyber uh, attacks, uh, there were very fundamental flaws, uh, including in a, a physical access to premises and so on, that were overlooked. So we shouldn't always think that a cyber attack will be some hackers, very sophisticated hackers that are you know, randomly checking for the entry point to our systems. It might well be uh, some more old-fashioned of uh, uh, people, uh, you know, wrongdoers that find a way into the system through more traditional means. So we really have to look at the basics as well, as well as the more sophisticated um, tools that we have in our hand. So um, with that, um, I refer you to uh, the Resource Center uh, of the Toronto Center for more information on this topic, as well as other related topics, and I thank you for your attention. Thank you, Massimo, and thank you to everyone who joined us today. We hope you found this webinar informative and relevant. Thank you, and goodbye for now. Thank you.